0: He's risen. He risen. God is so good. This is the day I look forward to every year and I am thrilled to be here. I hope you guys are thrilled to be here too. Um, if, uh, if, if uh, anybody still got open seats near you, if you would just stick your hand up real quick and let us know if there's a seat by you. So if anybody's still looking for a seat, those are where you find them. Um, It's really cool when all the seats are full, so it's good to have you guys here. Thanks for being here. Some of you are old like me. Some of you might remember in 1964, the most popular show on television, I mean all three channels included, (laughs) the most popular show on television was on every week on Sunday nights, It was called The Ed Sullivan Show. And in 1964, there was this little band from England who made their American debut on The Ed Sullivan Show that Sunday night. And when they played the Beatles on The Ed Sullivan Show, it sort of rocked everyone's world. And uh, there was a DJ right here in LA on KRLA AM and they had been playing Beatles songs but none of them had ever seen the Beatles and then they saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and this DJ by the name by the way his name was Bob Eubanks you may remember him he said we have got to get them to California and so Bob Eubanks called the Beatles manager, Brian Epstein, said, hey, I want to bring them to California. I want to bring them to the Hollywood Bowl. And they made a deal. And they said, there's no way we're coming unless you guarantee $25,000. That was like more than a house cost. He made the arrangements, he did all the promoting, he got the Beatles to the Hollywood Bowl, and when the tickets went on sale in 1964 at the box office of the Hollywood Bowl, every teenage girl in North America was in line. (laughs) The line literally stretched from the Hollywood Bowl to Hollywood Boulevard. And the tickets for the best seats were seven dollars. So they packed out the Hollywood Bowl. The Beatles showed up. They took the stage, and they played for precisely 30 minutes. Wow. And then they left. <laughs> no encore. No need for one. You had just seen the Beatles live. What more do you want, right? The Beatles were the biggest thing the music world had ever seen. The whole world is caught up in Beatlemania at this time, to the point where John Lennon infamously said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. Now, the Beatles caught a lot of flack for this. I'm not sure he was wrong. Uh, There was nobody lining up for hours to get tickets to any Sunday morning worship service. There was nobody fainting because they heard the name of Jesus, and and so everybody got mad because he made such a ridiculous statement, Uh, but if he had said we're better than Jesus, that would be one thing, but to say we're more popular than Jesus, even in 1964, might not have been a false statement. The Beatles took a lot of heat for that statement, but I think they were probably right. And that's the challenge of Easter. We, we get to see our favorite celebrity and we lose our minds. We, uh, we, we see our, our favorite team win the championship and we are insufferable, right? We go crazy. You get a big promotion at work. It's the greatest thing that ever happened. You buy a new car. You can't wait to tell everybody about this new car and all the gadgets and all the ways that it blesses you. But Easter? Eh, We're used to Easter. We become comfortable with the idea of God coming to earth as a man, dying for our sins and raising again on the third day. We're just accustomed to the idea. For too many of us, That truth has lost its wonder, and my job today is to help us get that wonder back, to be reminded what an amazing thing it is. Once a year, Easter comes along, and we stop, and we look up, and we think for a moment. We take a moment out of our day, and we think about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free, and that on the third day, he rose again. My prayer for all of us is that we will always be amazed by that eternity-shattering fact. Today, we're going to look at the shortest version of the Easter story in the Bible. And the reason is because those kids know about the Easter egg hunt. (laughs) And so, as a favor to the children's ministry team... I'm going to keep this a little shorter than usual. So, so like two, three hours and I'll be done, okay? If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. You go to your New Testament. It goes Matthew and then Mark, second book in the New Testament. Go to the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 16. We're going to pick this up in verse one. Let me just read to you what Mark wrote. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will move away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. Go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's actually the end of Mark's story. I know that in your Bibles, you see that the verses continue after that. In our English translations of the Bible, most of us have those verses continuing, but they're usually in brackets or italics or something. And the reason for that is because all of the most ancient manuscripts do not contain anything past verse 8 in the book of Mark. It ends so abruptly... That some copyist later said, this, 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 this leaves us hanging, we, we need to know more. And so they borrowed from some of the other gospel stories and put some other information in there. But in the most uh, ancient of manuscripts, you don't find anything after Mark uh, chapter 16 and verse 8. So literally he just tells you, hey... After the, after the um, crucifixion, he was laid in the tomb. They, they rested on the Sabbath. They came back as the morning was dawning on Sunday, and the tomb was empty, and an angel told them, He is risen. The end. <laughs> it's the end of his story. He just ends it there. So he tells us about the resurrection, and then he walks off the stage. No encore because once you close the show with long, tall Sally, you don't need an encore. That's the idea. Mark just tells us that the tomb is empty as if we're supposed to just go, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense. We're just supposed to take him at his word as if that's enough for us. But here's my question for you this Easter morning. What if it's true What if it's true? The other Gospels... They tell us more about what happens later. He has conversations with Peter. There's the whole thing where Thomas places his hands in his wounds. There's uh, the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus along with Jesus. We see the great commission that we're to go into all the world and share the gospel and make disciples. But after 15 chapters, Mark just tells us matter-of-factly that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen. You see, to Mark... This was the whole reason he wrote his book. This is the whole point. And he doesn't want us to get bogged down in anything else. He wants us to know that we know that we know that we know that Jesus Christ is alive. That's what he wants us to know. So no more needs to be said. Because the cross clearly had great meaning. Hopefully some of you were here On Good Friday, we really focused our attention on the cross and shared in the Lord's Supper together and thought about the deep meaning of the cross. But but let me just say something with all respect. There's nothing remarkable about a crucifixion. Tens of thousands of people were crucified by the Romans over the years. It wasn't the crucifixion. It was what happened during the crucifixion. That has such significance. The wrath of God for the sins of the world was poured out on Jesus as he hung on that cross. He paid the price for our sins. So we always are astonished by the physical suffering when we read or hear the story of what Jesus went through for us, how he was beaten and scourged and how he was hung on a tree and all that he went through and and we're astounded at the bloody mess of the cross. But I'm here to tell you, again, with all respect, that the physical suffering of the cross was the easy part for him. The cost of our sin is so high that it could only be paid by God Himself. And so, literally, it was the wrath of God that was poured out upon Jesus as he hung on the cross. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating blood and he's crying out and he's praying, his prayer, three times, his prayer is the same. Father, let this cup pass from me. Father, let this cup pass from me. Father, don't make me drink this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This cup is a very clear reference as you look back through Scripture. It always refers to the cup of God's wrath. We're talking about the wrath of God. Crucifixions, common. At least two other guys were killed on crosses right next to Jesus that very day. And you don't know their names and neither do I. Their crucifixions are historically insignificant. What makes the story of Jesus so remarkable is that he wasn't paying the price for his own sin. He was paying the price for yours and mine. And that price literally killed him and if that is where the story ended it would be a terrible story but you'd be surprised to know that's not where the story ended today's easter and we've come to think about what happens after the cross see according to mark according to all the other gospel writers, according to all the historians in that area at that time, there is another chapter to the story. There is an empty tomb. So again, I ask you to think about this question. What if it's true? And maybe before we really ponder that question, we should ask another question. What if it's not true? What, what if the tomb is not empty? What if Jesus is still dead? During the first century, there were skeptics, just like today who argued that the tomb couldn't be empty, Jesus couldn't be alive, because resurrection is impossible. We all know that death is the end, and when death happens, the story is over. And so skeptics have argued that the resurrection didn't happen because it couldn't happen, because people who are dead don't bring themselves back to life. There were even God-fearing religious Jews at that time who rejected the gospel message basically because they believed no such thing as resurrection was possible. What if they were right? What if it's just a fairy tale? Well, the Apostle Paul addressed that question. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're in Mark, you're going to turn, I don't know, 75 pages to the right. After you get to Romans, you're going to find 1 Corinthians. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up as the Apostle Paul makes his argument about the significance of the empty tomb. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So this what if it didn't happen question really matters. If Easter is just a fun holiday for kids to eat chocolate bunnies, The the solid ones, not the hollow ones. The the good ones. (laughs) If that's what Easter is, and that's all that Easter is, then we, my friends, are a pitiful lot. Because if Jesus is not raised, we have no hope. We have no shot at eternal life. In fact, if Jesus is still in the tomb, then his whole life and ministry is, was a fraud. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. Just leave, a, leave your finger there in 1 Corinthians. Go the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Go to John chapter 2. And this is the very beginning of the story. And we're going to pick it up in John chapter 2. Let me just give you some context as you're turning there. Jesus is just starting his earthly ministry. It's Passover week and He goes to the temple, and when he gets to the temple, he finds that it's not being used as a place of worship. It's not being used as a place of prayer. Instead, it's become a giant swap meet. There's animals running around everywhere as people are selling the animals. There are money changers who are taking advantage of people, trading in their money from wherever they came from for temple money so they can make the offering at the temple. And they're making money hand over fist and ripping the people off. And Jesus walks in to the temple court and he sees all of this and he loses it. And he begins to turn the tables upside down and he begins to drive the people out and he says, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. Get out of here. And he's running the people out. That's where we pick up the story in John chapter 2. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse 18. The Jews then said to him, now by the Jews we mean the the Pharisees, the priests. the The ones who make their money through the selling of these animals and the changing of this money, they were pretty upset. So they come to him and they ask him something. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of, of his body you see the significance of the question and the answer they're asking Jesus dude where do you get the authority to do this who do you think you are what gives you the right to just walk in here and take over like this is your house He you said well it's my father's house but that's neither here nor there what sign do you give as proof of your authority to do this. In other words, what makes you so special? How do we know that you're from God? What evidence do you have to back up your story? Jesus claimed to be the only path to God and they're asking him to prove it. What makes Christianity different than every other philosophy out there? What makes Christianity different than every other religious system out there? What makes Jesus different from all the other teachers, all the other priests, all the great humanitarians and philanthropists, all the great moral teachers? What makes Jesus so special? Well, first of all, since he claims to be God and claims to be the only way to heaven, he is not a great moral teacher unless that's true. He's a filthy liar and a religious fraud. C.S. Lewis famously wrote about this in his great book, Mere Christianity, and he says it way better than I could. And he says it with a British accent, but I'm not going to try that. (laughs) Here's what Lewis wrote. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Everything hinges on the question of whether Jesus really is who he says he is. So what's his answer? Where's his proof? That's the question they're asking him. Here's his answer. Kill me, and in three days I'm going to pull off Easter. (laughs) I'm going to raise myself from the dead. I'm going to walk out of that tomb alive. That's my sign. That's my proof. And it wasn't until after it happened that his disciples realized that he had been talking about the temple of his own body and not the physical temple in Jerusalem. When that tomb turned up empty on the third day, when the angel greeted the women, told them that he is risen just as he said, when the women ran and told Peter and the others, when the disciples saw the empty tomb for themselves, when they spent 40 days with the risen Christ, that was all the proof they needed. Their lives were changed forever because they knew it was true. He who was once dead is now alive they knew it was true. Their eternities were changed along with the millions who believed their testimony. You know, the 11 disciples who remained and saw Christ after Judas's suicide, 10 of them died a horrible martyr's death rather than renounce the fact that Jesus is alive. And the 11th one, John, was banished to to an island where he had to live out the rest of his life there until he died. If it's not true, we are of all men most to be pitied. But what if it is true? Go back to 1 Corinthians 15 with me. Because... Paul addresses that question as well. We're going to start in verse 19 where we left off. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we're of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. I thought you guys were asleep already. Let me try this again. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the answer to the question, what if it is true? In Christ all will be made alive. Since he is alive, that means we can be made alive by faith. Everyone who puts their trust in Jesus will also be raised with him unto eternal life. That's what that promise means. That's what that empty tomb means. That changes everything. That's why Easter is a huge deal. It means I have more to live for than fame and prestige and wealth and comfort. It means that I have hope beyond grave. It means that the struggles of this world are not the end of the story. It means that God is for me, and if God is for me, who can stand against me? It means that I'm not just marching through this earthly life toward a dark tunnel that never ends called death. Death has lost its power. But as the old song says, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. And that is why Easter is by far my favorite day of the year. Even when I'm dieting and I can't eat all that stuff. (laughs) The empty tomb is my source of hope. Now now listen, I'm just going to be straight with you. Um, I got a lot of religious education, and and the seminary's got a lot of my money. And I had to read a lot of books and do a lot of study. And I'm not going to lie to you. I have done significant deep digs and research into the historical claims of the resurrection. I have looked at the archaeological reports. I have considered the arguments against the empty tomb. And after measuring all the evidence I could find, I'm going to tell you, I am absolutely convinced that the evidence for Easter is absolutely overwhelming. But that is not why I'm sure that he lives. I am sure that he lives because he lives within me. I am sure that he lives because I know him personally. I'm sure that he lives because he is busily changing my life right now, today, from the inside out. I am sure that he lives because he lives in me. And because he lives in me, I have peace. Because he lives in me, I have joy. Because he lives in me, I have hope. And because he lives, I have put all of my eggs in the Jesus basket. (laughs) Now listen, I'm not kidding. You're going, is there candy in there? Yeah, there is. Don't tell the kids. My whole career is based on the idea that he lives. My whole philosophy of life is based on the idea that he lives. My family is built around the cornerstone of the idea that he lives. Every day of my life is dedicated to him because he lives. Every egg I have is in the Jesus basket. And guys, if he is not alive, I am of all men most to be pitied. But I want to tell you something from the bottom of my heart Jesus Christ is alive. His resurrection changes everything. And so I'm putting all of my eggs in the Jesus basket. How about you? Where's your life invested? Where's your hope placed? Where does your joy come from? What gives you purpose? The resurrected Savior is all the reason we need for joy and purpose and hope. I'm going to put all my eggs in that basket, and I pray that you will two let's bow our heads together and as we prepare our hearts to pray the band's going to come and they're going to lead us in one more song before they do that i just want to invite you just in the quiet of where you're at bowing your head and focusing on jesus to maybe ask yourself the question am i putting all of my eggs in the jesus basket Do I have this hope that they're talking about? Is there joy for me that overcomes the brokenness of this world? And if you don't know him personally, I want to invite you to just put your trust in him. There's there's nothing mystical about this, there's nothing strange. Nobody's going to ask you to stand up, raise your hand, sign a card, or do anything like that. But if you have not yet put all of your trust in Jesus Christ, right now he invites you to do that. You just pray something like this Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I can't save myself. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you paid the price for my sin. I believe that you're alive today and that through you I can have give me that life Jesus. And as we put our trust in him and allow him to be Lord of our lives, he takes over and changes everything. Lord, we, we come before you on this Easter Sunday so thankful, so grateful that you're the King of kings and Lord of lords, and we ask you, God, to meet each one of us where we need to meet you in our own hearts, And that this Easter would be a day not just to remember the time when you were raised, but that it would be the day for some of us when we too are born again. We thank you, God, for your grace. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. And we thank you that you're alive in us today. And we continue the celebration now in Jesus' name. Amen.